Thank you for joining us for this week's sermon podcast from the First United Methodist Church of Parable. Yes, God, we give thanks for the opportunity to be together today to share in worship and fellowship, to make our gifts and our offerings together now around these ancient and sacred and challenging words. We pray that the words of Scripture, perhaps your words through my words, would speak to your people gathered here, that you would use this time to shape and reshape our souls according to your will. These things in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I feel like I ought to begin today's uh, sermon with a little bit of a caveat. Uh, This this is such a serious and heavy topic, so I don't have a lot of sort of funny or clever stories. Uh, Someone at 8 o'clock said, uh, you can't preach like that every week, meaning that it's sort of tiring, right? Uh, So I won't preach like this every week. But today's a serious issue, dealing with forgiveness, how to understand forgiveness. I've got a couple of important stories, I think, to help highlight how we might do that, uh, but not a lot of lighthearted material today. Next week, be a little bit more lighthearted. As you know, this week, of course, we uh, recognized and remembered uh, the events of September 11th. Uh, every a year, when that date comes around, I tend to return to a few uh, key stories surrounding uh, that terrible, terrible occasion. Uh, not just the news stories of the events themselves, that's been well documented, but there are some human interest stories that followed out of September 11th that uh, captured my attention then and continue to do so now. Uh, One particular one that you're familiar with is the story of Todd Beamer. Uh, He was the young man, 32 years old, who was on United Flight 93 uh, that was also hijacked uh, and was uh, set to to be crashed in a similar way to the other planes, but but he and others intervened in that flight and, and led to its eventual crashing in a field in Pennsylvania. And it's a remarkable story of of courage, uh, a pretty young guy. Uh, What's so profound about the story is that we have this video recording of him talking to someone on on the ground, a flight flight guide, and then the FBI agent as well. And he recounts in great detail what's happening on the plane. And then, of course, he he wants them to tell his family that he loves them and he will miss them. He recites the Lord's Prayer, all of this on the phone. He recites Psalm 23, and then he ends all that with saying, let's roll, meaning we're going to intervene and we're going to try to stop these bad guys. Just a profound story of courage uh, on, that, on that terrible day. Another story I often return to is the story of the falling man. There's this, there's this famous picture of someone who leapt off the buildings, and there's a, a real clear photo of it. And so it led to a lot of editorials about who was this man, what was his story, and a lot of research has been done in the aftermath. Uh, one particular essay is called Falling Man, the Unforgettable Story by Tom uh, Junod, and it's just written really creatively, and it kind of, again, unpacks the events of that day in a very human way. encourage you to read it if you get a chance. Another story I often return to the week of September 11th is this, is this story here of these two women. Uh, their names are Phyllis Rodriguez and Akai El-Wafi. Akai El-Wafi. Uh, if you want to read about them, you can go to the Forgiveness Project. That's where some of their stories recorded. They've done a TED Talk. This is a snapshot of the TED Talk they've given. And uh, again, I've read it many times. I often return to it in September, and I thought I might share with you a few details today. Now, these are their words, so I'm going to read them and not just recount it. I want you to hear what they have to say. Uh, First from Phyllis, the Caucasian woman there on the left. She said, I was returning that morning from a walk by the river, and I heard there was a fire at the World Trade Center. I saw what was going on on TV, and I had a message from my son Greg that there was an accident, but he was all right. At that point, we soon realized it wasn't an accident. I called family and friends and told them Greg was okay. Greg is her son who was at the World Trade Center. Later that evening, I didn't have a follow-up word for him, and of course, I suspected the worst. We found that some 3,000 people had died. 
we were all devastated and we knew this would lead to greater violence and war. Greg's death caused me a a distant empathy for all of those who lost children or loved ones that day. Later, I met Aika, A-I-C-H-A, and that was a day that changed my direction emotionally. It was beginning to learn that someone who had suffered so much could be so generous. When Greg died, I thought I will never forgive the people who took my son, but I've come to see forgiveness as more than a word, but a context and a process. I don't forgive the terrible act, but I'm trying to understand those people, to accept those people as human and valuable, and to forgive them. Now, Aika, the other lady there, uh, she is the mother of one of the men who was found guilty of contributing to the acts of September 11th. Her son was Zacharias Masai. Uh, he was found guilty of conspiracy to commit acts of terrorism, conspiracy to commit aircraft piracy, destroy aircraft, use of weapons of mass destruction, murder to United States employees, and destroying a property. And so they arranged, many months later, an opportunity for some of those who had had loved ones die that day, as well as those who had loved ones involved with the events of that day, to meet. And so these are her words. Following the events that day, I saw my son's picture on television, and I cried out to the TV, it's not true, it's not my son, how could this be possible? The media came to my house and camped out for a week. I was beside myself. When I thought about the people who died and their families, I knew my suffering was not the same, and I wanted to offer my condolences and to apologize. So the evening before I met the families, I was terribly nervous. My heart was beating, but I was encouraged to do so and told I was doing the right thing. When I met Phyllis, we fell into each other's arms, and we cried a long time. I'm not responsible for the choices of my son, but I did give birth to him. I so wish Zacharias had not gotten involved with Al-Qaeda. I feel anger and love and compassion for my son. Part of me is now dead because he spends his life in jail. Now, that's just a snapshot of their story. You can read more about it. These two women who have worked together and kind of been the face of this effort around forgiveness for people who were involved both on the American side and the Al-Qaeda side, people who had family members involved, family members who were lost. Just a remarkable story. I mean, really, remarkable story of human generosity and care. And, and of course, they've, they've done a lot of speaking and writing. And um, again, you can go read, read more about them, and I encourage you to do so. Today we read this story from Matthew 18, and again, I'll remind you last week, uh, Jesus gives this little, this little uh, set of rules for how we might deal with sins within the church, and so he says if, if someone sins against you, you should go talk to them. Uh, if they won't hear you out, then you should have a group meeting. If that doesn't work, then you should take it to the church leaders, and then finally you should treat them as a, a tax collector or, or a Gentile. And so that's sort of Jesus' instructions for dealing with sin in the church. And so immediately today we read in verse 21, Peter says what we're all thinking, Okay, forgiveness, Jesus, um, okay, it's kind of difficult. Like, Jesus, if we're going to forgive each other, how, how much, right? <laughs> how many times, Jesus, is really enough to forgive someone else? Embedded in Peter's question is the thing that we all know to be true, right? Forgiveness is, is difficult, it's awkward, it's painful, we typically avoid it, it's not our natural disposition, When someone does harm to us, whether it's in our family or our workplace or here at church or or even in other places, when someone does harm to us, the the immediate reaction, of course, is anger. Anger sometimes leads to revenge or vengeance. Long-time anger builds into bitterness. And oftentimes, when there's sin, there's a permanent break in a relationship. Those are the ways we typically function. Those are the ways we assume we ought to function. That's the natural thing to do. So when Jesus says you ought to forgive other people, Peter says, yeah, okay, sure, Jesus, but like how, how much, Jesus? Like surely we shouldn't forgive someone more than once. 
Certainly not twice or three times. And Jesus says, no, not once or twice or three times. You should forgive someone 77 times. Now we know seven is this number for completeness, seven days of creation. Seven is a whole number, a perfect number. So Jesus takes seven and he kind of doubles it up, 77, right? In other words, you should forgive as much as you can, as much as needed. It's a number so big you can't even imagine doing it that many times. You should continuously practice forgiveness. And so to explain himself, Jesus offers this little parable. It's kind of straightforward. He says there's the king and there's a, there's a slave who owes him 10,000 denarii, 10,000 denarii, uh, 10,000 talents, excuse me. 10,000 talents is a ton of money, many months' wages. The slave owes the king a ton of money, and so he begs for forgiveness of his debt. The king says, okay, I'll forgive your debt, and sends him away. But then the slave runs into another slave who owes him 100 denarii. 100 denarii is a tiny a little amount compared to the 10,000 talents. And yet the one slave is unable to forgive the other slave his debt of 100 denarii. You can see the math there. One talent's about 6,000 denarii. So the one slave has been forgiven a debt of 60 million denarii, but he's mad at the fellow slave who owes him 100 denarii. 60 million compared to 100, right? That's the ratio here. And so the word gets around what the slave has done. They tell the king, the Lord, he calls him back in. He says, what are you doing? I, gave, I forgave you this massive debt and you're not willing to forgive someone else a small debt? Then, then you're going to jail and you're going to be punished. And Jesus says, so, so it'll be with all of you if you do not forgive one another. Of all of Jesus' parables, this one's pretty straightforward, right? Uh, we are in the role of the slave here. We've been given uh, immeasurable debts uh, in terms of our relationship to God. God has forgiven us of so much, uh, things we've done to other people, uh, anger we've carried in our heart, the judgmental spirit we often carry in the world. I mean, we are so broken and malformed in our own souls and spirit, and yet we confess with our mouth, we believe Jesus is Lord, and God has forgiven us, right? Of course, the phrase in Scripture is justified. We've been, we've been justified by God, we continue to be forgiven as we grow in grace throughout our lives. God has done so much for us. And yet, we are unwilling to offer that same grace to other people. There's something about our sins that seem forgivable, right? Like our sins are accidents. You know, we didn't mean to. Our sins are, are small missteps. We were just having a bad day. We haven't had our coffee yet that morning, right? Our sins are small things. We know in our heart we are good people and God ought to forgive us. But oh boy, those other people, right? Those other people that I deal with. Those other people are cranky and mean and hurtful. They're terrible. They're vengeful. They're, oh, they're such a pain. There's no way they deserve grace and patience and forgiveness. And so in this parable, Jesus points out that we have a disproportionately positive view when it comes to our own spiritual life and the, and the grace given to us. And we have an exceptionally negative view when it comes to others and the forgiveness that they should be offered. As I was preparing um, this sermon, I remember that I had been introduced to this story. It's a really complicated story. I'm going to try to summarize it for you. It's, it's written in a book titled 77 Times. Uh, 77 Times, A Story of Murder and Mercy by Alex Marr. Of course, 77 Times is taken from the scripture today from Matthew 18. I'll try to hit some of the highlights. The lady on the left here is, is Ruth Pelkey. She lived in Gary, Indiana. Some of you may remember this story from the news. It's been, been in the 80s, but it still reverberates today. Ruth Pelkey was 78. She lived in Gary, Indiana, May of 1985. Uh, her home was invaded by a group of teenage girls, 
and they invaded her home. Uh, they beat her up. They actually took her life. They stole some money, and they stole her car. Uh, they were quickly caught and apprehended. They were arrested. The girl in the middle picture here, his name is Paula Cooper. She was age 15, and she confessed to taking the life of Ruth Pelkey. And so that in itself sort of reverberated in the local media and even in the national media because such a young person did such a heinous, act active crime. Uh, she was found guilty and she was sentenced to life in prison at 15 years old. The guy on the right is a guy named Bill Pelkey. He is Ruth Pelkey's grandson. Uh, he worked there in a steel mill outside of Gary, Indiana, and he has this remarkable story. As he's working there in the steel mill, he's operating a crane. Uh, he remembers being overcome for many weeks and months with anger. You know, how could God allow this to happen? They're a family of faith. He had other challenges in his life. He's a Vietnam veteran, so things were just sort of spiraling in a bad way for him. He spends a lot of time in anger and bitterness until he has this kind of vision, and he reports this, a vision of his grandmother, Ruth, uh, and he has this vision of her crying, and he's crying while he's at work, right? Uh, and he concludes that these are not just tears of, of, of sadness, but these are tears of empathy. And so this otherwise very average guy who's working a, a daily job, he, he really becomes spiritually convicted that his nana, as he calls her, a lifelong faithful Christian, would want this girl to be forgiven. That's a remarkable thing, right? And so he concludes, because his nana can't do that, obviously, that he should do it for her. And so he leads this sort of public testimony to have Paula forgiven, to have her, her death penalty sentence reduced to a prison sentence. And not only was it reduced to a prison sentence, but she was able to leave early on good behavior. Really a remarkable thing. And so he begins to communicate with her, sends letters. He eventually meets her when she gets out of prison, befriends her, actively forgives her. I mean, he has these wonderful quotes where he says, you know, forgiving her is, is the thing my Nana would want. It's certainly the thing Jesus would want. And forgiving her has done more for me than it has for her. That living a life of forgiveness has allowed me to be whole and to experience healing and to, and to move on from this terrible tragedy. And so Bill Pelkey, he starts this nonprofit. It's, it's titled um, from, from, Vic, from Journey from Hope, From Violence to Healing. And he works with families who have been involved in similar crimes. And he preaches, becomes a preacher essentially, visiting churches and small groups. He preaches the power of forgiveness, right? That even when terrible things happen, Forgiveness is possible, and it's transformational. He sort of spends his life committed to this cause. Today we read the story of Joseph and his brothers along with the New Testament lesson. Uh, Joseph's story takes up like the last third of the book of Genesis, so it's, it's a lot to summarize. It could be its own, sum, its own sermon series, but I'll remind you of some of the highlights. Uh, Jacob, of course, is the father to the 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. Joseph is one of the younger sons, the second youngest son. When Joseph comes along, and he's sort of Jacob's favorite, Jacob's pride and joy, the older brothers are jealous, right? And in their jealousy, they lead Joseph out into the wilderness. They concoct a plan to sell Joseph into slavery in Egypt, and they do so. Not only do they sell Joseph into slavery, but they fake his death. They come back with his clothes bloody. They tell their father, Joseph has been killed. It's a terrible tragedy, all the while knowing that he's become a slave. Well, then Joseph's story begins to turn. He, he begins as a slave, but he has incredible skills. He interprets dreams. He's an organizer. He's a leader. And so he moves up in the ranks in Egypt, and he becomes sort of second in command. God works through Joseph in Egypt as second in command, storing up grain in Egypt for the famine that is coming. It's a long, winding story, right? 
But eventually the famine comes, and Jacob's family, Joseph's brothers, come to Egypt looking for help. And the person that they come to looking for help is none other than Joseph, their brother who they sold into slavery. It's a great aha moment there at the end of Genesis. They're reunited. Joseph provides for their families and for the people of Israel. Eventually, Jacob dies. Their father dies. And so Joseph's brothers get together and they say, Oh my gosh, now that dad is gone, surely Joseph is going to get us, right? Surely all those terrible things we did to him when he was little, you know, selling him into slavery, faking his death, surely he's going to get us now, right? And that's what we read today in Genesis 50. They come to their younger brother who's in power in Egypt and they beg for forgiveness. And he says this most wonderful thing. He says, it's okay, you know, you're forgiven. What, what you intended as harm, uh, God has intended for good. Now that translation's a little clunky there, but like what you did was a bad thing, but, but look how God has used it for good. He says, not only are you forgiven, but I'm going to provide for you and your families and for your little ones and the people of Israel will continue to flourish. One of the rich stories in the Old Testament a story of familial discord, which is common in the Bible, but also a story of, of reunion and reconciliation. And what we hear in Joseph's story is this assumption that despite the terrible things people do in the world, even sometimes your own family, despite the terrible things that people do in the world, God is constantly at work. God is constantly at work redeeming the world, sometimes working through terrible sins and brokenness and pain and grief. That no relationship, no individual is too far gone for God to to bring healing and wholeness. And so Joseph is not only a a great leader and organizer, but he has, of course, a spiritual wisdom. He says, look at this terrible thing you did. It was a bad thing, but now God has been at work through it. And God's still at work today. My sense is when we talk about forgiveness, there's kind of there's two levels. The, the one is the sort of simple acts that we can forgive quickly and easily. Someone does something trivial and small and, and we can move on. We're, we're not going to hold a grudge or, or even remember it the next day. But there's another level of forgiveness that's, that's sort of that deep-seated pain and hurt that we carry sometimes for many years. And I think we would cry out with Peter like, yeah, Jesus, forgiveness on paper is a good idea. It sounds good. But Jesus, have you, have you seen these people I deal with, right? Like, Jesus, how many times? Now, Sarah offered a, a, a wonderful caveat to the children, and I want to offer that too, right? Jesus' message here is not about returning to an abusive relationship or an abusive person. That's not what he's saying, right? You don't go back over and over again to someone who's intentionally hurting or harming you. You, of course, should end those relationships, and you should remove yourself and make yourself safe. That's not what Jesus is saying. What he's saying is we return to forgiveness over and over again as a testimony to our faith. When we forgive someone else, what what we're saying is we believe that God's at work in the world. And God's at work in in our anger, in our bitterness, in our frustration. And God's at work in the spirit of the person who's harmed us. And if God can raise Jesus from the dead, then surely God can reconcile the brokenness in our lives. So when Jesus tells the disciples 77 times, what he's really saying is forgiveness never runs out. Right? To give up on forgiveness would be to forgive up on God. So instead, you continue to practice forgiveness, you continue to lean into forgiveness, knowing that God is at work in your life and in the lives of other people. So I guess I want to offer that invitation to you today. 
not just to forgive those trivial small things, the little things we do to hurt, hurt each other, step on each other's toes. Those things happen. They need to be forgiven. But I think today we ought to dig a little bit deeper. Those long-standing uh, sins that we've been carrying with us, that anger and that bitterness. As uh, Phyllis Rodriguez said, forgiveness is not just a word. It's not just a one-time thing. It's a process. It's a sort of way of living in the world. Jesus, how many times are we going to forgive? 77, as many as it takes, continue to forgive. Continue to invite God into your life and into your world, bringing healing and wholeness in your spirit and into the spirits of others. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Holy God, we confess that we often carry bitterness and anger in our hearts, that we have often reached for revenge, that we have ended relationships over the sins that we have committed and the sins that we have been confronted with ourselves. God, help us to have the courage and the wisdom to understand that forgiveness is not just a good idea, that forgiveness is not just a nice thought, but forgiveness is your work in the world, your spirit at work in the world, bringing healing and wholeness even in impossible circumstances. Some of us here today, God, carry that sort of bitterness and anger in our spirits, and we are working to learn to forgive. May you continue to lead us on in our own journey of forgiveness. May you continue to help us know healing and wholeness in our lives and in the lives of others. These things in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about First United Methodist Church by going to our website at www.fumcparacle.org. May God bless you this week.